Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the call. Great to have you with us on this Thursday session. This is the program, 10 Stocks Picked by You. Two experts, all in one hour. I'd like to welcome into the program my guest hosts. We've got Julia Lee here with me in studio from Berman Invest. And also joining me from Climb is Rod Barstow. He's joining us remotely via Skype. Rod, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing over there? Yeah, good, thank you, Nadine. How are you? Um, very well, Julia. Lots has been on this week, budget not the least of which. Uh, do you think that any of the optimism that we've seen priced into this local market over the past couple of days can be traced back to, to the budget? Absolutely. I mean, the size of a stimulus that we're seeing this time around is absolutely huge. During the global financial crisis, the stimulus that we saw was about $51 billion if you don't include interest rates. This time around, $257 billion. And if the share market is a reflection of the business environment, you'd have to say that much money coming into the business cycle as well as the economy means that an uptick in the business cycle over the next four years. We will see. I think a lot of it has to do with the U.S. president mm. and stimulus and everything else going on there. But let's get back to the here and now, shall we? Because Cezil is our stock of the day. So today we have heard from Cezil. It is out with its quarterly update and everything is looking pretty hot. Uh, merchant sales growing by over 230 percent. Active consumers surging just shy of 180 percent in the period. Looking ahead, management has reiterated guidance, targeting an annualized run rate in excess of $1 billion by the new year. It says that it's well positioned now to finalize its move online. Nearly 100% of all transactions are coming through via e-commerce engines. Sezzle's management is also reportedly eyeing payments activity in India to determine its next move. So let's get a view on Sezzle. Um, from our first guest in studio, Julia Lee, Berman Invest. What do you make of Cezil? Too hot to handle? <laughs> You'd have to be pretty impressive with the growth rates that came through. You heard that they, are, they have reiterated their target for a run rate of $1 billion in underlying merchant sales by the end of the year. But I actually think that they're going to achieve that next month, given that they're almost there already. So that speaks to extra upgrades. Don't forget that Cezil, while it is in that payment space, it's also exposed to retail. And we're coming up to a very busy time of year for retail, especially in the US. I love the Black Friday sales, which are on after Thanksgiving at the end of November, and then we come into Christmas as well. So look, I think they're going to have a very positive end to the year. The other thing just to be aware of, of course, is competition, because we know that PayPal in this quarter is also going to allow its customers to pay in four installments. So watching that very closely to see whether it does eat into that buy now, pay later space, but I mean, the market for that space is growing. It's just a case of who's going to be gaining market share. And at this stage, Cezil does look like it's growing very strongly. So not only were merchant uh, sales up by 21% quarter on quarter, but we also saw the number of active merchants up 40% quarter on quarter. So is that a buy? Uh, I think I'd probably allocate a little bit to it because it is so hot at the moment. Probably half what I would normally allocate given that uh, PayPal announcement about a month ago. Yeah, Rod, that is really colouring the whole view of this whole buy now, pay later space, isn't it? The fact that you know, competition is rife and it will likely only get more intense because why would some of these more established players just sit back and let the Aussies come in and take over? Yeah, I'm not sure they will. And, and you know, we've already called out, uh, you know, PayPal's pay-in-for product. I think, you know, one of the interesting things about that is that it's going to be made available to all of PayPal's 22 million merchants. So you think about that in terms of uh, what that might do to a company like Cezzle and its market share. It's going to be very interesting. And they've, they've made the announcement that they're intending to launch that before Christmas. So we're, we're watching that with interest. And, 
I think you know, Sezzle, there's a lot to like about it. I mean, it, it's a to some extent, it's a fast follower behind Afterpay, um, which is the clear leader. But that opportunity in that segment is absolutely enormous. It's uh, you know, really the trend of moving away from credit cards into buy now, pay later is a very, very strong driver of value, and, and you know, we, we quite like that. I think, you know, on the flip side, uh, we haven't seen a lot around loss rates, and so that's something that we'd like to understand. And um, you know, and what is uh, Cecil's own assessment of the impact of the pay for model? But uh, like the business, you know, it's it's in a it's in a sector where there's a tremendous amount of momentum. Uh, you know, but I think to your point, though, I mean, you know, the existing uh, as we've seen in Australia to some extent, you know, the banks are now, um, you know, coming up with zero interest credit cards and uh, have started to make some noises around what they see in this segment. Is this actually a credit product, which would um, put a whole different level of regulation over this sector as well? So I think there's some interesting developments. Um, at this stage for us, Sezzle is a whole. Uh, we do like it, uh, but at a small weight, reflecting the really good execution that we've seen, uh, we think that that might be worthwhile looking at uh, in time. Okay, so perhaps not a buy now, but a buy now, pay later. <laughs> I had to do it. Okay, right. Um, look, that was the stock of the day. I'm sort of unclear. That might be going into the stock portfolio. We will see. Who knows? Uh, let's talk about Saracen Minerals. So this is the first question that's coming from a viewer named Chloe. Chloe, good day to you. Uh, Saracen Minerals, Rod, I'm going to start with you. Um, obviously, the big news around Saracen this week is the merger of equals happening with Northern Star Resources. It sure is, and, and that's what it's all about. You know, it's, a, it's about creating a gold miner of global significance. I think, um, you know, there's an old adage that stockbrokers only merge at the top of the market. So I think, you know, perhaps we um, want to be a little bit careful around that in terms of creating this, but I, the numbers actually make a lot of sense. So a nil premium script merger with a small, small dividend uh, to be affected via a scheme. And um, interestingly, uh, so the Saracen CEO, Rowley Finlayson, is talking about one and a half to two billion in pre-tax synergies over a 10-year period, so 150 to 200 million per annum. Uh, you know, that uh, about 36% of that would, would accrue to Saracen shareholders. And so that's that's pretty attractive. Uh, and I think that's a big driver for uh, for the, the activity that's taken place. You can see on the chart, both um, Saracen and Northern Star have rallied about 10%. So much of the value uplift has already been factors in, factored in. Um, you know, I think beyond those stated targets, we'd be really interested to see where uh, where the future upside is going to come from. Okay, um, Julia, curious because I suppose the question coming from Chloe didn't specify whether she's already a holder in mm. Saracen. In which case, she'll be now a Northern Star shareholder, a little bit of a special dividend. But I was reading, you know, one broker saying that look, um, you know. City believes that Saracen will need to sell the idea to shareholders of this merger as a valuation uplift to make it attractive. Because essentially it is a takeover of Saracen yeah. at a nil premium. And look, we own uh, Northern Star in the portfolio, so I will put that forward. We're pretty happy with the merger because the merger makes a lot of sense. When it comes to the suite of assets that the two companies own, there is a strong overlap or management style or even looking at organic growth options. There's a lot to like about this merger. It makes complete sense and the synergies as well, up to $2 billion over the next 10 years. So look, it's, it is a, it makes sense, I think, for both companies. If you were going to enter in, you'd probably enter in via Saracen, given there will be a small dividend that's paid um, ahead of the merger. But the other thing that I like about it is that Northern Star is already included in a global index, the MSCI index. And we know how powerful passive investing and the exchange trader fund movement is. So after this merger, well, you know, global investors or passive global investors that track that MSCI index, they'll need to take a bigger stake in terms of Northern Star. So look, I think there will be a, a positive tailwind over the next few months that that sort of works its way through. And then after that, it's of course about the underlying gold price. It's all about the gold price, isn't it? So Julia, would you say that there could be more M&A in the gold space here in Australia? Yeah, I, I think it does make sense. I think this one makes the most amount of yeah. sense. When you see merger of miners, it's very unlikely that you see high levels of synergy. But with these two, they have a very complementary asset based management styles and the synergies that come out of it are pretty impressive too. Good. Okay, Chloe, I hope that helps form your view of Saracen Minerals. If you're going to be buying now, you want to be on uh, the Saracen side to get that special dividend. Let's get to another completely different company. This one is Clearview Technologies. A question coming to us from Samantha. 
Uh, Julia, I'll start with you. I spoke with CEO Ken Jagger, I think it was just last week, because it got one of its first orders for a project in Brazil. Brazil? But one thing I noticed, I think it's worth about 200,000 bucks. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I love these type of stories where this is like a smart building company yeah. where you can basically glaze either windows or buildings to turn it into renewable energy or capture renewable solar. energy. It's solar, essentially. It's solar energy. Um, but when you have a look at the renewable energy space, I mean, um, the last two decades has been fantastic stories. But when you have a look at the underlying story, a lot of it is dependent on government rebates and uh, government targets to really get momentum in terms of this space. So we are seeing slow movements there, but I think because of the COVID-19 situation, perhaps some of that has been on hold. So look, I'd probably put this very much as a speculative um, because it is dependent on government targets as well as rebates. And as soon as those targets and rebates sort of shift and change, sometimes it can make it or break companies like this. Yeah, and uh, Rod, I think as well, I mean, everybody likes the thought of this because it makes sense. You put uh, solar capture in panels, in glass, you feed it down to the basement where you've got your Tesla you know, charging station, but these sorts of technologies do still take some time to be adopted and to become mainstream. So if you look at Clearview, either at the technology or the company's prospects, I mean, does it seem like a really um, surefire way to play this renewables story? I think the, uh, you know, the Julia's called out there the some of the regulatory and policy related issues. And I think that's important to understand that, uh, you know, the, it is sometimes difficult to navigate that particular sector depending on uh, the politics of the day. But I, but I think also that, uh, you know, really to be, to be honest, the negatives outweigh the positives from a technology perspective as well. I think you know, we haven't been able to get comfort around the actual technology itself and comparing that technology in terms of efficiency uh, to existing solutions. And of course, those existing solutions are becoming more and more efficient every day as well. So you know, this is one of those ones that, that looks really good on paper. And as you say, it's a, it's a fantastic story. It sounds great um, you know, as a way of increasing building efficiency without, uh, you know, major sort of uh, capital impost around retrofitting. Um, but I, I think I think for us, you know, if you were to look on a like-for-like -like basis of investing in a solution like this versus investing in a traditional sort of renewable solution, it doesn't stack up at this stage. So this one is a sell for us. Okay, that is a, a clear sell coming from Rod Bristow from Climb Asset Management. Samantha, thanks for the question. Regardless, Richard has emailed in and he is asking about my state mys is the ticker code so julia this is a bank that operates primarily in tasmania correct yes small market yes it is a relatively small market look um my state i think it was a merger with uh, the rock building society back in 2012 so they have a banking license as well as trustee services um, and a wealth management arm, arm as well and look when you're looking at the banking space it's mostly about yield for investors and the yield here is about 3.9%, but the final dividend's cancelled. Um, the good news is that the final dividend's not cancelled because that they've had bad performance. It's been cancelled because of um, tier one capital requirements, so just to preserve some capital. So look, that's probably something temporary. It means that the share price will probably be going sideways for a bit of a time. But if you can see through that um, and into when dividends uh, are paid again, then you know it's probably going to be a stable owner there, but nothing too exciting. The good news is compared to the big four banks, it's been performing relatively well. They've had relatively high provisioning, which means if they don't use it, some of that will come back um, and impact in a positive way. But all up, you know, with the final dividend being cancelled, there's no real reason to jump into the stock at this yeah, stage. Yeah, why? Why get in now? Is that how you view my state ticker code MYS? Rod, I mean, we don't talk about it a lot. We do talk about the wider banking space and the headwinds that it's facing right now, in particular because of the pandemic and the fact that, you know, we've got so many people on mortgage deferrals and stimulus payments being squirreled away at a very low rate of return. What do you make of my state? Yeah, it's a really interesting proposition, my state. I mean, there's a lot to like with a very low risk loan book, you know, 80% or nearly 80% of that's below 80% LVR, predominantly owner occupied and about 40% exposure to Tasmania. Uh, strong credit quality, so arrears well below industry benchmarks. Uh, so also you know, relatively strong capital position um, and predominantly deposit funded. So, you know, I think um, 
the on the downside, you know, there was a recent uh, credit rating review and downgraded Moody's downgraded the long-term issuer rating one notch, um, short-term issuer rating unchanged. Um, you know, I think I think we would like to uh, before making a you know a strong call on this, we'd like to understand the rationale for that decision by Moody's and really, uh, you know, clearly get a sense of what is the view of management around that decision. Um, you know, we, we would hold at this stage. We think that it's one of those stocks that's definitely worth watching. It's been well managed over a long period of time, uh, you know, and could have some upside in years to come. Rod, I'm curious to get your view on the financial space, the big four banks in particular, because I've mentioned a lot of those headwinds that we know so well, but then we get this sort of talk about this, the, the, uh, the move that could happen, and we could be on the cusp of a move out of some of those high value or high growth names into more value areas of the, of the market. Yeah, I think uh, you know the, the budget was probably the best fill-up for big four bank stocks that we're going to see for some time. I, I think that um, you know certainly within our portfolios, we've been talking about this for some time, recognising this was going to be a, a highly stimulatory budget, and it had been rotating back into the big four. We were underweight for a long period of time, uh, so you know we we think that um, there's some some good quality uh, to be found there, and we think that um, you know they'll come back into favour over the course of the, the, the medium term in particular around uh, some of the, the very strong uh, signals coming out of the budget and central bank continued support. Julia? Probably a hold on the banks at this stage and I guess there's pros and cons. On the con side, interest rates are probably still going to fall, so the next interest rate decision on Melbourne Cup Day, probably likely to see the cash rate here in Australia fall to 0.1%. We know that in that type of environment, the banks find it difficult to grow profitability. On the other hand, their markets actually expanded because of the relaxing of the responsible lending mm -hmm. laws. The business cycle would have another tick up over the next four years because of the stimulus measures. But then again, we haven't actually felt the full effects of the fiscal cliff with the JobKeeper and JobSeeker um, sort of being phased out. So, But they're pretty well, cheap. Yeah, but things that are cheap can cut, become cheaper. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's all about finding that growth because I think that over the next four to five years, it's really going to be growth that outperforms, not value. Okay, so there's my state uh, for you, Richard. Our next uh, company that we're going to be discussing is ALS. Now, the ticker code is ALQ. This one's coming to us from Clifford. Uh, in the mining space, in the mining services space in particular, Rod, uh, one thing that sort of stuck out to me is that ALS, if we continue with this gold narrative, has actually quite a high exposure to gold. Is that a positive when it comes to ALS for you? It certainly has been in the last little while. I think um, you know, that's been a big benefit and has probably driven uh, you know, a lot of our view in that the stock's pretty expensive and, and that has been a a little bit of a barrier to entry, to be honest, given that um, you know we think that valuation might be a little bit stretched. I, I think um, the other thing that, that does uh, you know give us a little bit of pause is the uh, roughly a billion dollars of net debt on the balance sheet. So you know EBITDA from continuing operations around 400 million, so that is manageable, but it does reduce the optionality available to the business. You know we talked a little bit before about mergers and acquisitions in this space, and I think. You know, carrying a uh, an existing reasonably high debt level may limit some optionality for ALS going forward. Um, you know, I think in 2013, going back a little while, but you know, uh, the decision was made to expand into oil and gas, and um, you know, we've seen declines in the oil price uh, sort of work against uh, the company, uh, and you know, resulting in some quite significant impairments as well. So, you know, we we quite like ALS, um, but we think that there's um, there's a little bit too much uncertainty in there at the moment, so we're, we're holding on this one as well at this stage. Okay, so that's a hold from you, Rod. Julie, I'm curious to get your thoughts on ALS because, of course, miners are really preparing for an increase in drilling activity, and that could be an initial uh, you know, beneficiary of that movement. We hold this one in the portfolio. We like it. Um, Precisely because of that, if you have a look at the lead indicators in terms of the mining sector, if you have a look at financing to junior uh, through intermediaries or lending, in the month of August that jumped by 44%. So that's usually a lead indicator by about three to six months for mining activity and of course testing activity. ALQ or ALS is uh, one of the world's largest global testing companies. So whether it's testing in terms of um, mining and samples or whether it's testing in the area of life sciences or food or even COVID-19 um, and surfaces, um, that's the area that it's in. And the two 
biggest areas of um, ALS are in the area of minerals as well as life sciences. So if we're in the area of minerals, I think the lead indicators right now are very positive. And even if we have a look at the uh, number of meters drilled, they're back to pre-COVID levels. And my anticipation is that not only here in Australia are we seeing an increase in infrastructure spending, but that's going to be something we see all across the globe because um, of the weak environment, the economic environment um, from COVID-19, that we will see commodities doing well, we'll see miners doing well, ALS also doing well on the back of that. The other area is life sciences, and look, Brexit is an issue there. And for the area of food, what we'll probably see is testing both ways. So products going from the UK over into Europe and then back from Europe right. over into the UK. So life sciences has been one of the soft areas for ALS, but mm -hmm. moving into the new year, it looks like there's a bit more positivity there. Okay, but Julia, to Rod's point about price, so you're already a holder, so very happy I can see, but if you were going to buy in now, I mean, just judging by the chart, uh, you know, you could think that you missed your opportunity. Yeah, for me, price is a function of growth. So if you think that the growth is going to eventuate, then you know the price eventually becomes cheaper because you see that growth um, bringing down those valuation multiples. So look, I, I, I can understand that at the moment we've been through COVID-19 and there has been, I guess, a bit of a soft patch in some areas um, like Peru, where we have seen a, an impact there. But look, the share price looks like it was pretty much back up to where it was pre-COVID. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you have a look at the mining space, um, it's it's running pretty strong in 2020, and I think it's only going to go stronger in 2021. Okay, so Clifford, that's the information for you. Don't forget everyone out there listening. This is uh, information only in nature. It's not advice. You do have to obviously take into consideration your personal financial circumstances and get some appropriate advice before making any moves. Um, this is the call, 10 stocks in detail. Number five, I'm being told to hurry it up just a little bit, but I'll go to you, Rod, on Pendle Group. PDL is the ticker code. So we've seen a bit of flow weakness uh, in terms of Pendle. How do you rate the stock? Yeah, we, we like Pendle. We think that, um, you know, good scale, uh, good diversification across different markets, no debt, uh, you know, good cost structure where there's a strong link to variable costs. Uh, relatively low PE, below the long-term average of the peer group. Um, some good mandate wins that were funded in the September quarter. Uh, yeah, there's some headwinds there, but um, you know they're ramping up their US exposure as well, which will uh, support some higher margins. So, you know, the uh, one of the things that we're watching is is that overall level of equity exposure, which at the moment is around 71%. So, more volatility uh, is a little bit of a concern in that context, but. Um, and obviously then currency impacts on earnings as well. But uh, we do like Pendle. We think it's a great business, very well run, uh, very well set up for further expansion. So that's a buy from us. Okay, great, Rod. Yeah, and I suppose the, you know, would you say that the price is quite attractive in comparison to some other ASX listed asset managers? We just had the chart up on screen and, you know, clearly looks like it's got a ways to go to pre-COVID levels. Yeah, we, we do think that uh, at this point in time, it's, um, you know, the, it, it's looking quite good from a price perspective. Julia, do you agree? Yeah, the price is down 32% this year, so I guess it's much cheaper than it was in the beginning of the year. Um, I guess Pendle, it's a global fund manager, so when you're looking at a global fund manager, the type of things that you're looking at is the outlook for the market, because essentially it's a derivative of that uh, distribution, any mandates that it might be winning, um, as well as performance fees and performance. I guess in the last quarter, we did see performance fees, I think just above $13 million, so that was slightly ahead of expectations, which is good, but they also indicated that they've uh, achieved new mandate wins. So this September quarter, uh, they should be seeing about $1.5 to $2 billion coming through. So that should be a positive in terms of flows. And of course, the equity market outlook, um, I guess the next big catalyst for the market would be the CARES 2 package, possibly mm -hmm. after the US election now, but that would be a positive for the market, I think, looking forward. So the outlook looking good. So look, I'd probably put it as a small buy here. Um, I just wanted to see the share price momentum turning around a bit because it is down about 32% in 2020. It's flat for the quarter. We are seeing up 7% in the month to date. So I do think those mandates flowing through could be a positive over the next month or two. Because that's how you invest, isn't it, Julie? I mean, you look for fundamentals, but you also look for momentum catalysts. and the technicals as well. Yeah, I'm always looking for catalysts because essentially when I look at a business and if everything remains the same, well, the value of the business to me should remain the same. If 
was buying a corner shop for two mil and it was growing at 10% and had grown at 10% for the last 20 years. And I changed my mind and I wanted to sell it. I'd probably sell it for $2 million, nothing's changed. So essentially what changes a business value is new information coming to light. For example, an apartment's gonna be built next door at a thousand people are moving in. It's gonna be built in record time and be up and running in three months. Then I'd probably be able to sell that corner shop for more than $2 million. So it's the new information coming in, positive or negative in terms of the business value. Okay. Good analogy, Julia. <laughs> I heard that one from you before. Okay, um, I am going to sum up, we're at the halfway mark, what our expert guests have said in relation to, yeah, the, the, the five first stocks as, as um, brought in by you. So Saracen Minerals uh, by Chloe is, um, yeah, it is a buy from Julia Lee. Julia Lee also holds Northern Star in her portfolio. Um, she says, look, this uh, just makes sense. There's lots of synergies that will happen between the two. You'll probably want to be on the Saracen side as well if you're buying now because there will be a special dividend associated with what is essentially a takeover. But Rob from uh, Climb says, look, uh, this is happening all at the top of the market. Where, where does the future lie? So I don't think that's a hot buy from him. Uh, Clearview Technologies is the next company on the list. CPV is the ticker code there. Uh, Rod from Climb saying, yes, there are policy issues in terms of regulation when it comes to renewables. He's also not completely taken with, uh, you know, the technology in comparison to, you know, what else is out there and what else could be coming through. So the negatives there outweigh the positives for Rod. And it is a sell. Julia as well mentions that, uh, you know, the renewable space in general is full of uh, regulatory risk, really, when it comes to rebates, et cetera. She says that this is very specky. There is no need to be doing this uh, now, necessarily. My State is a company that Rod says is, you know, a really interesting proposition. It's been really well run. It has so recently received a Moody's downgrade. It's a hold for him just because there's so many unknowns when it comes to the headwinds that the financial space in general are facing and Julia um, says that look it's a stable earner it's performing relatively well there's no need to buy it now though because you're not going to be seeing a dividend for quite some time they pulled back on the dividend and put it in a pause ALS ALQ uh, make of that what you will the ticker code is ALQ and this is where we see a bit of a disagreement between our two expert guests so Rod says that it's expensive it's got a lot of net debt it's a hold for her, for him, excuse me. Julia actually has it in her portfolio in full disclosure. She sees price as a function of growth and she's expecting to see lots of growth in the commodities space as economies right around the world try to dig themselves and build themselves out of this recession. And uh, the final company that we were just speaking of was Pendle Group. Uh, Rod likes it. He says the company's got a good cost structure, it's got a low PE, it is definitely a buy. So Alan, there you go, go do your own research and get your own advice. Julia Lee says the outlook is good, it's a small buy, whatever that is, no, it's a small buy coming from Julia Lee. Um, share price is down 32% in 2020 alone, but she wants to see what's next. She wants a catalyst for the next leg of growth before she would be getting in in any big way. I think that's a pretty fair assessment of what our guests had to say. And of course, here on the call, we've been running our own portfolio and we've been tracking it since July the 1st. So if any of you are playing along, get a pen and paper out right now. I'll try to slow down while you catch up. Uh, all the stocks that get a two thumbs up or a buy, essentially from both of our experts on the show, we've been tipping into this call portfolio. So weekly, we're up nearly four and a half percent so far and an over 3% return on a monthly basis and uh, since July 13 or so, since July 1st I should say we're tracking 13.6% higher and uh, taking a look at some of the stocks that we added to the portfolio recently ProMedicus I was on that program Rudy Philippe Van Dyke Claude Walker from a rich life they both love this company ResMed has been added recently AUB group which I don't know a lot about Betmakers Simic group Altium Elders were taken out so Altium and Elders out and uh, if you would like to check in on what's in that portfolio, you can do so. Um, you can access that by going to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio, and we continue to update you each and every day. Um, just before we get back to the stocks that have been nominated by you, the companies that you are wondering if you should buy to put into your own portfolio, just a quick programming note. It's 
not all about blue chip stocks here at Osmos. I think as you know quite well, we love a good small cap play. And we've got one for you later today. So PYC Therapeutics surging in trade yesterday after new modeling showed positive results for its new drug candidate to combat blindness. We'll be speaking live with the company CEO, Rowan Hawkins. That's for all the details at 1.20 p.m. Eastern, right here on Ausbiz. Just gonna reintroduce my guests again, in case you're just joining us. Julia Lee is beside me in studio. She's from Berman Invest. Rob Bristow is joining us remotely from Climb Asset Management. Good to see you there. Okay, shall we get to it? Uh, we've got first up now, Tyro Payments. I'm gonna start with you, Rob. T-Y-R is the ticker code. This is for Ben. Uh, so Tyro has been impacted by the pandemic. There's no two ways about that. We're not going out and tapping on the side as much, are we? No, we're definitely not. And um, you know, pre-COVID over the last five years, growth was around 25% per annum. So that was very robust and uh, against low single digits or even negative growth for the banks. So, you know, we saw really robust growth for Tyro being Australia's fastest growing payments terminal. Uh, market share is currently 5%. So there's a very long potential growth runway here for Tyro as well. Uh, you know, we think the, the cost base is largely fixed, so we think that there's some good uh, operating leverage there as well. I think, um, you know, obviously the volumes uh, from March to April have gone down substantially. So in June, they recovered to pre-COVID levels, but then declined again during the Victorian lockdown. So, you know, sort of offline activity is the major driver of, of value here. Uh, so given those near-term headwinds, you know, once offline activity improves, we think that uh, that growth trajectory for Tyro will continue. So at this stage, you know, there's a bit of uncertainty there. We, we like the stock. We think it's got a lot of upside potential. Um, but at this stage, we're, we're, we would be saying that th this one's a hold just until we see some, uh, some more certainty around what might take place around community transmission of COVID over the next few months. Yeah, it has been hit quite hard, obviously, because of retail and hospitality. But Julia, this has been one of those companies, and Rod as well, that you know, really has gone a long way to keeping the up, the market very updated, very transparent mm. with weekly updates through the COVID crisis. Does that does that mean something in your books? I like this company. I mean, it's innovative, it's disruptive, it's nimble. And when you have a look at the merchant space as well as banking space, um, you know, there's a lot of reliability in terms of its network, especially when it's competing against some of these old systems. And when you're a retailer and, you know, your EPOS machine goes out, well, you know, there goes a whole bunch of sales as well. So I think reliability is a real issue when you're in this space. And I do think that retail is going to recover. It's been impacted by the Victorian lockdowns at the moment. But as we come out of the lockdowns, I think we will see a continuation um, and an acceleration in terms of, of growth for Tyro. So look, it is nimble, it's reliable, and then there's the ability down the track to be able to cross sell some of its other banking products to its merchants as well. So look, it's probably on pause for the time being, but I don't mind buying it here, um, given that this will be a, a COVID recovery story stock. Okay, COVID recovery. Now, on that banking piece, Julia, it's not really a very big portion of the business now, correct me if I'm wrong, so you do see some blue sky there. I'm curious about it because there's so many neobanks <laughs> coming to line, so many disruptors in the banking space. Is there enough pie to go around when you consider the absolute dominance still of the big four banks? Look, I think when you've got a very loyal client base, the next logical step is to sell them more products. I mean, we've seen that type of model with Kogan. He's done it very well. But when you have that captive audience and you can sell complementary products um, that work well into your initial product, I think it, it makes sense to either have a bundle offering or cross-sell other offerings across. So, And when you're a player that comes into the market, you don't have much to lose and everything to gain. So it's really the incumbents usually that lose out from increased in competition in this space and we saw that as a perfect example in the telecom space when competition opened up Telstra was the incumbent it had the only market share to lose and all the newer players well they only had market share to gain and Rod um, when you talk about that 5% market show, share that it has right now I mean do you put any sort of uh, figure as to how much of that market share that it could potentially gain or is that too difficult Look, it is difficult. I think you know disruption takes place where you know you've got usually higher end uh, of the value chain in terms of margins, and and there's a there's a, a mismatch in terms of service and expectation from a client perspective. And so I think you know I think um, Tyro has been very successful at exploiting that 
uh, in this context. And uh, but that's not to say that that the big four will take that line down. You know, you've got some very very astute uh, CEOs of, of our big four banks, and um, you know who have a very deep understanding of technology and the role that technology plays in in uh, being able to maintain competitive advantage in, in these sort of spaces. So I think the you know the initial um, rush that Tyro has had around uh, around being able to gain that market share has been great to see. But you know I think the competitive response will be very strong. All right, uh, let's move on to our next company nominated by Edward. Edward, I hope you're watching today or catching up via the podcast or video on demand. Uh, Link Administration, LNK, is uh, the ticker code for that one. So, um, yeah, we spoke with uh, John McMurty. He's the outgoing MD, long-standing MD in reporting season, and, and he admitted that it's been a very tough time, Julia, for Link. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we use Link. Um, so basically, um, they're in the area of fund administration as well as registry. And look, I know from using uh, Link in my back end, if I was ever to switch, it would be a complete nightmare from an operation risk point of view um, in terms of trying to switch everything over. So when you're with someone, you usually stick with them unless Very there's sticky. major problems. Yeah. And that's why around about more than 80% of their revenue is reoccurring, so it's a very defensive source of revenue. Yes, COVID-19 has been quite a difficult period, but as we come out of that, Link's really been focusing in on cost cutting, and that will start to impact in on next year as well as the year after. And I think it's really kind of quite a defensive type of company, and it's looking relatively cheap at the moment. So look, not hugely exciting, um, but I guess it also depends on your view on the market, because this is one that's also you know, linked to super funds, fund managers, but look, I think it's, it's a very uh, defensive type of business. Yeah, well, I was reading a broker note today saying pretty small impacts for Link from this budget. Of course, when we get major changes to super, there can often be big impacts for Link, which we've seen in the past. So uh, the budget include the stapling of superannuation accounts for employees, freezing of new memberships of underperforming fund, stricter requirements for trustees, but not ever, not, not having a material impact uh, on Link. So then when I speak with you, Rod, about Link, I'm curious to know your thoughts on earnings pressure in FY21 going forward because they have made a purchase of Pepper European Servicing. Uh, however, in the long term, could this be a real positive for Link? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, you know, it's one of the things that we like about, about Link as a stocker. You know, the, it, it, this one's a, and it's a cliche, I know, but it is a, it is a tale of two halves. You know, the last three years has been difficult. Uh, consensus earnings consistently revised, revised downwards, and um, but through no, largely through no fault of management, you know, earnings were impacted by a number of regulatory changes, and that had a significant impact on the business. And um, EPS revisions post the, the last earnings season were also negative, uh, but you know, FY21 we think will be a little bit difficult. But going forward, you know, the stock's trading on sort of 14 times FY22 consensus, so. We think at that level, it's it's attractive, and you know the Pexa, which you which you called out, which Link now owns 44% of, is now contributing 16% of earnings and growing strongly. So that's a that's going to be a material contributor. And transaction volumes are up 37% year on year. So um, you know I think that's they're good signs. I think for Link, uh, you know one of the things to watch will be, of course, uh, as with any organisation, when there's a CEO transition, there's a period of uncertainty, and so managing that transition next year as John steps down, who's been there for a long period of time and is very much, uh, you know, has championed the growth of that business over a long period of time. So um, there'll be a natural question in regards to will that mean a change in strategy, but taking all of that into account, given the current levels we're seeing, uh, we, we think that uh, we think the links are buy. Now, okay, that's a two buys from our guests. So I think that one's going in the portfolio. Bit of a defensive play getting in there. Nice to see. <laughs> okay, that is uh, your question answered, Edward. Uh, let's get to a question coming to us from Lynn. Now, this one, Rod, is aristocrat leisure. We used to talk about aristocrat leisure in terms of, you know, the, the old pull down, the pokies. Uh, but now we're talking about uh, online gaming. You know, is this a real name? One of the few Australian ways that you can play this massive thematic around the world. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, strong history of growth, uh, three-year cumulative earnings growth of 30%. You know, obviously a bit of a pandemic interruption this year, as many businesses have had. But, you know, a great play on economic recovery, uh, you know, from the venues side of the business, but 
Uh, we're also seeing, I think, some really good opportunities around some of the newer parts of the business for growth as well. Uh, share prices recovered very strongly. I'm sure the chart will come up shortly, uh, but it's still, interestingly enough, down 16% from pre-COVID levels. And so um, the business didn't need to do a capital raising and therefore didn't uh, take any dilution impact during that very difficult period. So, you know, the, the continued investment that we're seeing in product development around some of those very high growth areas is supporting their competitive position. We quite like uh, where this business is going and we rate, rate this one a buy as well. Okay, buy for Aristocrat Leisure, ALL is the ticker code. Julia, um, management referencing more M&A potentially at its investor briefing that was held quite recently. So if we saw Aristocrat move ever more into the sort of online space, would that be a big positive? I think so, because the growth is really coming from that digital side or the accelerator growth is coming from the digital side. We know that the land-based revenues are under pressure because casinos have been closed or um, have been, I guess, um, not getting as many patrons because of COVID-19. So the land-based revenues have been under pressure, but that's a short-term thing. We should see it bouncing back once economies reopen again. So if you're willing to see through the short-term weakness in the land-based revenues, I think the digital side is really quite exciting. Okay, so is that a buy? Yes. But even at these current levels, because um, Macquarie and recently downgraded it to neutral from outperform, saying that the price appeared fair value. Yeah, I think it is because, um, look, I think that people will go back to casinos as soon as there is uh, reopening. So, um, yeah, it's a buy at these levels. Okay. All right. Aristocrat for Lynn. That's a buy from both of our guests. Oh my goodness, that's going in the portfolio already. <laughs> okay, we are getting some wins on the board here. Uh, well, we'll see long term, but uh, yeah, Aristocrat Leisure is in. Our next company on the list is coming to us from Kim. Kim has written in about Orica. So O-R-I is the ticker code. So Orica's had a pretty tough go. Correct me if I'm wrong, Julia. Yeah, I mean, this is a pure explosives player. Yeah. So you're looking at ammonium nitrates and Look, I guess if you have a look at the positives for Orica, you know, they're usually multi-year contracts. They do have some intellectual property in terms of their wireless blasting systems, which is important when it comes to uh, blasting off explosives. And of course, as I mentioned, you've been seeing increased, uh, increasing strip ratios in the mining industry, and it's expected that we will start to see recovery next year. But on the flip side, there's been short-term impacts in terms of South Africa, Canada, as well as Peru because of COVID-19. So look, in terms of this one, I'd probably be a hold. I'd like to see a little bit more momentum coming into its underlying business and signs of improvement, which I think will come, but I just want to see the share price also moving in the right direction as well. I'm a big fan of seeing both momentum in terms of the underlying business as well as the share price. Yeah, okay, and Orica, I mean, just, I hate to say it, just not that exciting. You don't sound very excited about it in general. Yeah, no, I guess the ammonium nitrate space, it has been a, a little bit volatile. So look, I think there's a lot of other areas to, to be more excited about. Um, I guess one of the stocks in the commodity space that we're pretty excited about in our portfolio is Linus, which has been performing well. And look, it's really exciting, I think, when you've got new sources of growth coming through, which it does, I think, with its US links and its new facility that it's looking at in WA. Well, yeah, and also the U.S. president saying that he wants to reduce the U.S.'s Reliance. dependence on China. So there's that great decoupling narrative as well in that space. Rod, I'm curious to get your thoughts about Orica. Does it blow your mind? Does it excite you at all? <laughs> I'm glad someone else made the first <laughs> That's good. Uh, now, look, I think um, we share a very, very similar view to the, the view that Julia had articulated there. I think that you know, developed markets have recovered and are almost back to pre-COVID levels. Um, developing markets have been impacted quite severely by COVID and so uh, a big slowdown that we've seen there. So we're going to be watching, uh, Orica has a September balance date and we'll be reporting on uh, on the 6th of November. So we're going to be watching that fairly closely. Our current financial year, you know, we expect that there'll be a recovery in earnings and at the moment the stock's trading at a slight discount to its average PE. So. You know, we think it's probably fairly valued at the moment, but look at this stage, to be honest, Nadine, we wouldn't be rushing into this one. We, we, uh, we think this is a hold as well. Yeah, okay. It's interesting because I was reading as well about the technology. So Orica is increasingly using technology to differentiate itself from you know, some of the other players in the space and position into that higher value mining market. But it was interesting because one of the brokers was saying, yeah, but if a lot of its customers are focusing on cost cutting, that the technologi technological advances could actually work against it. 
yeah, it's exactly right. It's uh, it, it's going to be a really interesting space, and I think you know this is it, it's a real uh, it's a dilemma. I think you know when when there's a deep specialisation that a company like this has, um, you know they are exposed to to sort of innovations that might um, you know remove that specialisation from from uh, from the competitive advantage that it's currently got. So. We're not seeing that right now, but you know, I think that, that there's a risk of that happening over the next few years. So, would Orica Julia be best to try to diversify or expand out what it does? Uh, I think there's a, a real risk that comes when it move, a company moves outside of its area of expertise. So, it really depends um, on what it is looking at. I mean, technology is great as long as it helps in terms of the cost side of things. But if it's going to add in terms of costs, or um, it doesn't it doesn't help much in terms of efficiencies, then, you know, companies are going to evaluate that. So, you know, if you could use less explosives with the technology yeah. that they were using, that would be a positive. And I think people would be pay, willing to pay a bit more for that. Uh, Kim, so that's not a screaming buy from either of our expert guests. In fact, it's a bit of a hold. I do note that Orca has some gold exposure as well, but 19% of revenue, and that's obviously a hot spot to be in right now. Um, our final company today is coming to us from Angela. Resimac Group, RMC, is a ticker code. It is a non-bank lender, Rod. What would set Resimac apart from any of the other non-bank lenders, the listed non-bank lenders out there? Uh, to be fair, not much. Um, you know, I think one of the things that is a positive is the reduction in the cost to income ratio that we've seen since 2017. So uh, a 68, from 68% down to 38%. So that shows that the business is uh, on the right track in terms of sort of uh, making sure that margins are being maintained. Um, you know, the, the specialist for Resimac is, is about uh, providing sort of finance to prime and specialist cohorts, which, uh, you know, there has been some challenges where we all went through the GFC. So we recognize that, uh, you know, those sort of, uh, these non-bank lenders can have some concerns around that. I think what's been interesting is watching the regulatory uh, the government's reg regulatory response around uh, you know, responsible lending and wanting to free the market up. So I think that's a positive tailwind for for Resimac, um, and obviously very you know very strong budget from a stimulus perspective as well. So, um, but at this stage, you know, Resimac's PE is about 13 times, same as Westpac. Um, you know, we we probably wouldn't be investing in this one at this stage. We 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 call this one a sell. Okay, ah, actual sell. Julia, does this, does Resimac pay a dividend? Uh, I would say so. Um, that's not the reason I like it though. I like you this like one. It? Yes, I guess the difference Ooh. between this and a bank is the way that they're funded. So the banks, when they're looking at funding mortgages, really fund it through deposits. About 70% of their funding is through deposits, which are relatively expensive, whereas Resimac, uh, they fund it through uh, the residential mortgage-backed securities, which would have been a problem in the global financial crisis, but at the moment is a positive because that's based off the floating uh, bank bill swap rate. Um, so that's a positive because that means their costs are lower and that means the net interest margin is going in the um, in a different direction from yeah. the banks, whereas the banks have been seeing their net interest margins coming down. Resimax is completely the opposite. I mean, the last um, net interest margin number we got from them was 1.79% uh, compared to the previous uh, corresponding period, which was at 1.39. So that was a, a pretty good um, improvement. So the fact that we are seeing interest rate costs falling, the lack of reliance on deposits like the banks means that their cost side of things is looking pretty good. So. Um, Resimac, compared to the, the big four banks, I think is in a much better situation. And to give you an idea of the impact the net interest margin has on their profitability, I mean, one uh, basis point, uh, one basis point in terms of the net uh, interest margin movement results in about $900,000 profit, so about a million dollars, almost a million dollars movement. So when you see those big jumps in net interest margins moving from 1.39 up to 1.79, I think there's a competitive advantage there just from the cost side of things. But is it in your portfolio? Is it in your fund? No, this is too small. Where ASX 200 is our investment universe, so um, it's outside of our investment universe. So if it was bigger, <laughs> it might be. It's a buy yeah. though, if uh, for the purposes of the show. I think so, yes. Okay, so a sell on that one from Rod, a buy from Juliet. That is what makes a market and that is what we love, isn't it? Okay, let me run you through those, um, those past five companies that we've just discussed. Let me get to my, first one was Tyro Payments. TYR is the ticker code. 
Rod says it's only got 5% of the market share, great growth runway. Uh, look, the offline activity is still attractive, but it is a hold at this stage of the game. Julia, though, says that this is a COVID recovery story. It's disruptive, it's nimble, and it's got uh, a really sort of, I guess, locked in base. And when you um, have retailers that love the product that you serve, maybe you can sell them some more. So that's a buy for Tyro Payments from Julia. Link Administration, Rod likes this one as a company, he says it's pretty attractive. Um, yeah, obviously there's a little bit of risk that we've got the long-standing MD leaving the company, which always brings about questions of a change in strategy, but he thinks that it's, it's a buy, and Julia thinks that this one is a buy as well. So this is Link Administration. Look, she uses the product herself, so she says that it's a defensive part of the portfolio. It's pretty cheap. So looking pretty good right now. Now, Aristocrat Leisure is one that we do get a lot of questions on. ALL is the ticker code. We also get a lot of questions about esports, about online gaming. And uh, yeah, that's the sort of positives when it comes to Aristocrat, when it comes to the digital space. But Julia says, again, this is sort of a COVID recovery reopening story. It's a buy uh, for Julia. And Rod says, yes, it has been impacted from the pandemic. Um, the share price is still about... Um, well, 16% off pre-COVID levels. And yeah, Rod, I think that was a buy as well. I'll double check that just at the end. And Orica, Orica, look, it's um, doing pretty well in developed markets, but developing markets, a bit of a problem for the company. Look, it's just not anything to get too excited about. It's a hold for him. It's a hold for Julia Lee as well. She is banking on that minor recovery, but it operates in such a specific area of, uh, of what's going on that it's just not that that exciting, really, at the end of the day. Resimac Group, Julia would buy it if it was a bit bigger, potentially. Um, she likes it the way that it's funded from the RMBS market, so it means that its net interest margins are higher, its costs are pretty low compared to the big four. So yeah, that's a buy from Julia, but when it comes to Resimac for Angela, RMC, it is a sell coming from Rod. Nothing much to stand it apart. Still see a reduction in cost to income ratio, but um, and some positives when it comes to the regulatory environment right now. But when you compare its PE ratio to something like a Westpac, it's actually a sell in his views. Rod, I just wanted to confirm with you, was was Aristocrat was a buy, wasn't it? That's correct, yep. Okay, so Aristocrat is going into the portfolio as well. A little clap <laughs> from the side here, Julia Lee. A huge thanks to you, Rod Bristow, for joining us live from Climb Asset Management. Really appreciate your time and your insights. I hope you have a good one. We'll do the COVID wave. And uh, Julia Lee from Berman Invest, good to see you. Great and to see you, thanks speak for having me. Soon. All right, I hope you did enjoy the program. If you have any companies you'd like us to cover, you can email us at thecallosbiz.com.au or find us on socials. All of the stocks we have in the calls portfolio, you can head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Mm -hmm.